morning we're going to be in 1 John chapter 2. If you want to turn in your Bible there. We're going to look at John's statement about Jesus, that He is the propitiation for our sins. Verse 1 and 2, and then we're going to talk about what that means. So 1 John chapter 2, beginning in verse 1, John writes this, My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. I want to reword or break this down because it really will help you understand what John is saying and why he can say these things. I want to reword it this way. John calls Jesus, Jesus Christ, the righteous. And it's by virtue of Jesus' own righteousness that he's qualified to be our propitiation. And because Jesus is the propitiation for our sins, he's qualified to be our advocate with and before the Father. That's going to help us understand what John is saying. So this morning, those three titles, Jesus Christ the righteous, Jesus our propitiation, Jesus our advocate, is what we're going to talk about very briefly before we partake in communion together. The ancient Greeks were in many ways uh, like countless millions of people today. They believed that the gods and their appeasement, which is what propitiation means, it means to be appeased, satisfied, they believed that to gain the propitiation of the gods, that we had to offer some righteous sacrifice from ourselves. They believed that we were able to do this. The work of appeasing the gods fell upon each man. If he failed in his duty, his religious duty, he could not appease the gods. And moreover, the Greek gods, their natural disposition toward mankind was not to be merciful to them. That had to be earned. It was not their desire to be merciful. They had to be won over through whatever it was we could do to appease them. So if the gods were to carry out any goodwill toward man, it had to be earned by man. And the Greeks believed they could do that. The Greeks did understand one thing. To propitiate, appease the gods, righteous sacrifices were necessary. That's true. However, they turned their eyes inwardly upon themselves to their own righteousness, sacrifice, works, appeasements to the gods in order to gain it. What we have in the gospel is a very different account. The gospel reveals a whole new reality to us. It reveals that God's desire has always been to bless man. It's, it's his natural disposition toward us. His desire is to bless. He doesn't have to be won over to do that. His natural disposition is to bless. As James said, at mercy triumphs over judgment, right? So it's not God's reluctance to bless mankind that's the reason for our lack of blessing in our life. Rather, it's because something has come in between God and man and has hindered and made blessing incapable of coming. John tells us what it is. Jesus was the propitiation for our sin. Not for God the Father. It's the propitiation for our sin. It's not God that needs to change. It's our sin and the relationship we have to God in sin that needs to change. Additionally, in the gospel, we're told not to look to ourselves, 
but to our own, not to our own righteousness, but to that of someone else. And as John calls him in our first point, we look to Jesus Christ, the righteous, not to Seth Ellsworth, the righteous. Our look is to him. Three different times in the Gospels, in the life and ministry of Jesus, God the Father broke his silence from heaven and declared something. This is my beloved Son. In him, I'm well pleased. Trifold testimony from God the Father of who his Son is and that he is pleased with Jesus. He's been propitiated already because of Jesus. God put forth his Son as mankind's righteous substitute because mankind as a whole is fallen. And we know this. But that's what we're remembering in communion. Mankind was fallen. We were incapable of becoming or being righteous before God. We had to have a substitute and a sacrifice. As we just sang, Jesus is called the Lamb of God. He's the unblemished substitute able to atone for sins, as Drew read this morning out of Hebrews. And He alone could atone for sins because He alone was without sin. He alone was the righteous. So what Jesus alone could offer in a sinless and blameless life was satisfactory and it was capable of qualifying Him to be the propitiation for our sins, which is our second title we see John give him in this passage. He, verse 2, is the propitiation for our sins. So as I've said, propitiation simply means to satisfy, to appease. Jesus is the appeasement. He is the satisfaction. John's statement argues that because Jesus is the righteous one, the perfect one, the blameless one, He alone can be our propitiation. He alone is Himself the appeasement. But why? Ask yourself that question. Why endure the cross? Why endure the suffering? Why endure the shame, as Hebrews 12 says? Why endure the scorn, the scoffing of men who hate Him, who hate God, and love themselves perfectly? Why endure it? Turn over to the second use of this word, to John chapter 4. By the way, the word propitiation is only used two times in the New Testament, both in this letter. We already read it in 1 John chapter 2, verse 2. The second use is in chapter 4. And we're looking at why, why would Jesus do this? Why would He offer Himself? He was completely righteous. Why would He become a substitute for sinful men? Verse 9 of 1 John 4. In this the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent His only Son into the world so that we might live through Him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Very simply, the reason Jesus was willing to offer Himself as the propitiation for our sin is because God loved us. Now that truth is an amazing truth. It's a transforming truth. When you stop and think about who you really are before God, undone, defiled, corrupt, dark, sinful, there's nothing we could offer God and not, not only that, we were becoming more and more and more corrupt, as Paul says. Nonetheless, God loved us. He didn't look at us and see something in us that says, ooh, I like that, I'll love Him. No. 
There wasn't anything in us that drew God's love. God simply is love, and He chose to love us. He chose to set His affection upon each and every one of us. That's grace. We couldn't earn it. He simply gave it. It was because God loved us, as John says, not because we loved Him. Now that, like I said, is a transforming truth. If God had not chosen to love us and to send His Son, we would still be in sin, without hope. So it's clear, the answer is, is, is that God's love for fallen, sinful man was the motivation to send His Son, the only righteous Son of God, who became the only righteous Son of Man as well. And in that, He satisfied and He appeased, became the propitiation for our sin. John 3.16, we love the verse, For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, so that whoever would believe in Him would not perish but have eternal life. So back in chapter 2 of 1 John, he says that He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but for also but also for the sins of the whole world. So Jesus Christ became for us sin that we might become the righteousness of God, as Paul said. Paul also said in 1 Corinthians that Jesus became wisdom, righteousness, sanctification, and redemption, so that it's written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. God's desire has always been to show mercy. As the Old Testament form of propitiation was a picture of, every year they'd offer goats and rams and bulls and pigeons that could never fully propitiate for sin. They could never fully satisfy God because they could never fully take away the guilt of sin. It simply covered it until the next year. So it could never truly atone for sin. That's why I had Drew read out of Hebrews 10. Only the blood of Christ could actually atone for sin. Everything else fell short. But it was a picture for us of propitiation, the sacrifices that the Jews would make every year though they could never take away the guilt. They never dealt with the corrupt heart of the sinner. Jesus did that through the resurrection and the new birth. But Jesus is both the sacrifice as well as the priest who offered the sacrifice. He was both. He was the sacrifice, but He was also the high priest offering Himself. He offered His own blood, the book of Hebrews says, to propitiate, to atone once and for all the sins of the whole world, John said. So let me summarize this for you. No one is excluded from the scope of God's mercy because of the propitiation of Jesus. Atonement was made for all mankind. But as Paul also says to Timothy, Jesus is the Savior of all men, especially of those who believe. So while Jesus atoned for and is the propitiation for the sins of the whole world, it's only those who actually receive Him in faith who will ever know the benefits of it. Those who never trust in Christ will never know anything of God's love. They'll never know anything of the benefits of His forgiveness, of His resurrected life, of the new life we can have separated from the flesh. Jesus is the Savior of all men, potentially, because His atonement was made for all mankind. And yet He's especially and practically the Savior of only those who believe. Because those who believe will know His salvation actually and no one can snatch them out of His hand. So what's the benefit of all this? Jesus the righteous qualifies Him to be the propitiation. 
Because He's the propitiation for our sin, there's a specific benefit for those who would trust in the Lord. And John says, He's also our advocate. We have an advocate with the Father if we do sin. He says this in chapter 2, verse 1, My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father. Jesus Christ the righteous. Jesus the righteous is qualified to be our advocate. The word advocate is the same word that John uses in his gospel when Jesus talks about, I will send you another helper. Paraclete. It's the Holy Spirit he's speaking of there. Now, I love this truth, and I want you to listen to this. Jesus here by John is called our advocate. In his gospel, he calls the Holy Spirit our advocate. What's the picture? The Spirit of God is given to men on earth to be our helper. He's abiding in us and with us, while Jesus is in heaven pleading before the Father as our helper. Do you see that? He's given us His Spirit to be our helper on earth. He Himself is in heaven as our advocate, our helper, pleading before the Father. Here's what Hebrews 7.25 says about Jesus, that He's able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through Him, since He always lives to make intercession for the saints. What wonderful truths the Scripture reveals here. God the Father so loved us that in His divine sovereign plan of salvation, He sent His Son to atone for sinful man, paving the way for mercy to be given in place of wrath. Jesus then lives continually in the presence of the Father, interceding for us, helping us, petitioning the Father for that grace and mercy, as Hebrews 4 talks about, to help in our weakness. And Jesus has boldness and authority to ask for it, because He Himself secured grace and mercy by the offering of his, Himself. He has the right to ask for grace and mercy because He's paid for the penalty by His own blood. So He can ask boldly, and He will get what He asks for. It will not be denied Him. Not only is Jesus our helper in heaven, Jesus also, as we looked at, gives us His Spirit to help us on earth. The Spirit of God takes those things of God, grace, mercy, forgiveness, power, and He communicates them, translates them into our heart and soul. He empowers us to live holy lives. He empowers us to be able to overcome and turn from those besetting sins that each and every one of us has. What wisdom and what favor and what mercy in God's plan. On both battlefronts, if you will, the Father has His sentries watching over us. Jesus in heaven and the Holy Spirit on earth helping us. What grace we are covered by indeed. Those are the three titles. Jesus the righteous, Jesus our propitiation, and Jesus our advocate. But why? I want to speak lastly to the first point John makes. My little children, I'm writing all of this so that you may not sin. But if you do, we have an advocate. So before we go into communion, I want to look briefly at this one last point. It's important. There's a twofold perversion of the gospel that's possible. John foresaw this when he wrote this letter, but these perversions are still pertinent today, and I've seen them recently. The first is this. If in this life I will always wrestle with sin, then why pursue after holiness? Why pursue after holiness? It's useless to deny reality and to fake it. And so instead of trying to fake holiness, we'll just give up and live how we always have. It's no use. 
Sin has got me in its clutches. I can't overcome it. The second perversion is this. Why take sin so seriously? Why dread falling into sin? God loves me, and He's my advocate. The first perversion seeks to discourage us from pursuing holiness, which was not John's intent. There's a reality that each of us wage war against the flesh. Each of us will sin. That's true. Sin is a reality. Sin is powerful. It does entrap many people. And it's tempting to give up in pursuing holiness from pursuing Christ. But sin does not have the final say with the gospel. Christ overcame through the resurrection. The resurrected Lord has the final say. Grace will prevail. The second perversion is the other extreme of this. God loves me no matter if I sin or not. I can live and do what I want. Jesus still loves me. In fact, I saw on the news, I don't watch the show, but I saw on the news a recent spat going on on the latest episode of The Bachelorette. And maybe you watch that show. You'll probably know better than me what it's talking about. But apparently there's a Christian contestant trying to win the heart of a lady on that show. And he took issue with her sleeping around. Good thing to take issue with. I'd love my wife to not sleep around with other guys as well. But her response was to kick him off saying, Jesus still loves me. I can sleep around with these guys. He still loves me. Now, in one sense, she's right. Jesus does love her. He does. But she'll never know his love while living in sin. She's still separated from it. He will not have fellowship with that. The danger is licentiousness. Turning the grace of God into license to sin. It's a common understanding of God's supposed grace toward us. John's purpose, however, is to put all this in perspective. We as Christians should never treat sin in such a way. But if we do sin, which we will sin, we don't have to be dismayed, nor do we have to treat it casually. As though there's no hope, or on the other hand, that everything's okay. Rather, what John lays out for us in this letter is that we can confess sin with humility, with sorrowfulness in our heart when we do sin. And we can ask God's grace and forgiveness to help us sin no more, to change our hearts, to change our minds, knowing that Jesus Christ is advocating for that very thing for us in heaven. That's what Jesus is pleading for in heaven for us. He is our advocate pleading the same thing. That's John's purpose in saying everything that we've just considered. Christians above all people should understand the misery of sin. In fact, growth in grace doesn't produce a haughtiness. It doesn't produce arrogance in the heart like, I can't believe they're doing that. Actually, what you see in mature believers is this. I know exactly why they're doing it. That's very tempting. But I fear and I'll flee. That's maturity when you treat sin like that. Knowing your own weakness is a mature thing. Denying the weakness of your flesh will only lead you to fall into it. That's the attitude John is trying to portray. So with that, I want us to take some time to move before we move into communion to go before the Lord. And I'm going to do something different 
this morning, I want to guide us into a time of prayer. And I've outlined three very specific things that before we take communion, I want each and every one, one of us to go before the Lord with. And then I'll pray for each one. So first, I want each and every one of you to take time to go before God privately and ask Him to search you. Here's what David said in Psalms. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there be any grievous way in me and lead me into the way everlasting. So ask the Lord now to search your heart. Ask the Lord to search your thoughts, to reveal if there's any grievous way going on in you. Confess it and turn from it so that you may walk in a way everlasting. So take some time and then I'll pray. Father, I'm mindful of what David also said in the Psalms. He knew himself and he knew that there were even secret sins of his heart that he didn't recognize or see. And so he asked you, Father, expose even that so that I might stand before you clean, that I might not harbor these things in my heart and hinder the fellowship that I have and enjoy with you. Father, and you ask us to do the same thing before we partake of communion and remember the sacrifice, Father. It's a hypocritical thing to come to the table while harboring sin. But on the other hand, Father, we do have sin, and you are faithful and just to forgive us. So, Father, search us, try us. Your call for us, for your church, is to be a holy, a pure bride for yourself, one who is in the world and not of the world. As your call in Paul's letters, he quotes, Come out and touch no unclean thing. Father, and in our evangelism, in our sharing with people, we want to meet people where they're at, but we don't want to be like them in their sin. We want them to see Christ in us and the difference so that they would desire something other than what they have in the flesh and the world. That they would see Christ in us. So we want to pray, search us and try us and reveal any grievous thing. Father, we might bring it to the light, that we might confess it. And Father, we thank you that we can confess sin without being condemned because of the sacrifice of Christ. We thank you that now, because of the gospel, we don't have to fear exposing our sin. We have an advocate, Jesus Christ the righteous, who has satisfied God's wrath. That we can receive mercy. Next church, I want you to take time to confess any specific sins that you know of. John says in 1 John 1.9, If we confess our sins, He is faithful and He's just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. The word confess literally means to agree with God. That's what it means. It means you see the actions, the attitudes, the thoughts of your heart, your mind as sin. You agree with God that they are. So maybe you have an obvious sin. Maybe it's anger, outbursts of wrath. Maybe it's some kind of addiction. Maybe it's abusive speech. Maybe your sin isn't so obvious. Maybe it's lustful thoughts that you entertain, carnal ambitions, apathy toward the things of God, living your life however you want and not considering what God has for you. 
whatever it might be, I want you to take time now to confess these things. Ask God to forgive you and to cleanse you. He's faithful to do it. In fact, he would be unfaithful to not do it. That's what his sacrifice secured. So take time now and go before the Lord. Father, I know that revival, that regeneration, that renewal of the Holy Spirit can only begin to happen in the hearts of people who take these things seriously. Father, your desire for your church is to be filled with Christ. It's to be filled with His light, with His truth, with His love. And yet Paul also says, what fellowship does Christ have with Belial? Nothing. What fellowship does light have with darkness? None. And so we can't walk with God and entertain those things, as John would also say. Father, we want to be a church that is bearing fruit, that is living and active, that your presence is evident. And Father, if it's not, it's not your fault. There's something hindering that. So God, if we have issues in our life that we're hiding, I pray that you humble us, but give us confidence to come to you and confess those things, knowing that your promise is that you will forgive. That's what Christ secured for us. Your desire has always been to show mercy, to bless. As you said in the book of Ezekiel with the wicked, you would rather that the wicked turn and live as opposed to perish. But Father, because of our pride and because of our stubbornness and our refusal to truly confess whatever sins might be entertained, blessing doesn't come. So Father, I pray You would move and stir us to take this call to follow Christ with the utmost seriousness. It is far more serious than any other calling we have on earth, whether it's with our jobs, our families. Father, when we cease to follow You, we cease to lead our families. When we cease to follow You, we might gain the whole world and yet lose our soul. Father, our desire is to be found faithful, walking with You, though we might lose all worldly benefits. So long as we have Christ, we have everything we need. You will never leave us without. You will never abandon us, leave us or forsake us, You said. It is impossible because the blood of Your covenant has bound You to us and no one can separate us, Paul said. You said in Your Gospel, no one can snatch You out of Your hand. So, Father, we with confidence can confess our sin, knowing we won't be condemned, knowing that when we do, when we humble ourselves, we'll find mercy, we'll find a caring God. I think of the, the woman caught in the act of adultery and all the hypocritical, self-righteous Pharisees pick up stones, ready to stone her for her sin. And you challenged them in a way that was just marvelous. You said, let he who's without sin cast the first stone. And then you looked at the woman who's bewildered that they didn't condemn her, and you said, neither do I, but go and sin no more. What grace, Lord. Thank you for that. Finally, church, I want you to take time to see if restoration needs to happen with anybody in your life. Maybe it's with a spouse. Maybe it's with a sibling. Maybe it's with a child. Reconciliation needs to happen. Jesus said in the gospel, if you see an issue in someone else's life, 
Take the plank out of your own first. If you're there offering your sacrifice and you remember that so-and-so has something against you, drop the sacrifice and be reconciled so that your sacrifice, the offering, might be received. So if you know of reconciliation and you can do it now, then do it. Things are unresolved in your life and you're not able to resolve it right now. I would ask that you don't partake in communion until you're able to resolve those things. Paul warned at Corinth that people were falling ill. Some were dying because of this very issue. We don't want to desecrate the table. We want to come as pure, holy vessels. Father, I do thank you that you've reconciled us, that you've removed that barrier, that wall of division, as Paul talks about, that was in between you and us because of our sin. You've removed it by the work of the cross. And that's what we're remembering. That's what we're proclaiming today. We have peace with God because of this. So Father, now as we come to your table, may it be a joyful time. May it be joy mixed and bound together with humility because our peace was costly. It was by His wounds that we've been healed. It was by His death that we've been reconciled. So Father, joy abides deep because of it. But it's somber. Father, we just thank You. We've gone through a time, Lord, where we've asked You to examine us. We've gone through a time where we can confess our sins to You so that we might come to this moment clean. Father, may we now celebrate and proclaim Your, your table, Lord. And may You be pleased with it. Pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So at this time, I would ask uh, everyone to come up, and I would ask the men to serve the women as well, if possible. And uh, go ahead and get your juice. Go ahead and grab bread. And we'll sit back down, and then we'll lead, I'll lead you through communion. All right, in 1 Corinthians 11, 23, Paul wrote this, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when He was betrayed, took bread. And when He had given thanks, He broke it. And He said, This is My body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of Me. Let me pray, and then we'll partake of the bread. Father, we remember, as You instituted, that this bread is symbolic of Your body. Your body being broken. Your body being bruised. Your body being torn, your, bo your body being penetrated. Father, you offered yourself as our sacrifice and substitute. It was painful. It was costly. It was unjust what wicked men did to you. And yet you satisfied the justice of God. And so, Father, we stand at your wisdom, at your love your willingness to send Jesus, your Son, as we read earlier, into the world. It was your love because you love men. You love your creation. And in your power, you can make them new. So we give you glory and honor as we remember the sacrifice body of Christ. Amen. Paul goes on and says this. In the same way, Jesus took the cup 
And after supper, he said, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you, pro- you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let's pray. Father, we also remember and we proclaim the shed blood of Christ through which we have forgiveness of sins. Father, through which the world can have their sins atoned for. So effective and so efficient, so effectual was the blood of Christ that John says he was the propitiation for the sins of the whole world. And God, while we understand that many will not come to faith, Father, we want to we want to persuade men to come. As Jesus said in the Gospels, go out to the highways, the byways, and compel them to come in to the feast. Father, your sacrifice was for men. And we would that many would know the benefits of it. That many would taste of the goodness of it. So we humbly thank you for the shed blood of Christ for us. Father, help us to proclaim that for others. Amen. Let me pray, guys. We'll go out and have a great week. Father, thank you so much for the service. Just letting our hearts, our minds dwell upon your work that you accomplished for us, Father. When we weren't looking for it, when we were doing our own thing, when we were living our own way and it was leading us straight to hell, Lord, you had compassion and you had love and you wanted to extend mercy. And so you sent your son to atone for and propitiate for our sins that we might be able to receive mercy. Father, we stand and thank you for that. Because you snatched us out of the fire. You redeemed us. You called us your own. You gave us a name. You gave us hope. Father, you give us life. And so what a special service we've gotten to partake of this, this morning, Lord. I pray this week as we go out, Lord, that this work would fill our heart. This is the gospel and that we would seek to share it, Lord. That we would live redeemed lives for others to see. That you would draw others through that, Lord, to yourself. And we pray all this in Christ's name. Amen.